We are going to be studying Psalm 86 today. So if you want to go ahead and study, uh, want to go ahead and turn in your Bible to Psalm 86, that'd be great. By way of introduction, I'm Ben Hyman. I'm one of the elders here at Mission Road and was given this privilege to teach this morning um, in a psalm of my choice. So very excited to be with you guys uh, this morning. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can go about selecting your text when you're you know, given free reign as to which psalm you're going to choose. Um, I think some of the guys have chosen... Um, maybe a, a classic psalm that we all know to try to explore that together. Um, some have chosen maybe an ob- obscure psalm that uh, maybe they thought people wouldn't know a lot about or, or would find something interesting in. Uh, for some guys, maybe it was like their life verse, you know, that was how they decided to select. And, um, you know, there is always that method of, you know, just pull out your Bible and kind of flip to the middle and whatever opens up, you could chew it that way. Or, if you're maybe a little bit more tech savvy, you could do like a random number generator, like randomly generate. You run the risk of Psalm 119 popping up, though, and uh, having to do that whole thing. So, Kelly, I want to say uh, apologies. I didn't do the random number generator. Myrl, you're welcome that I did not do the random number generator. The reason I chose this particular text is um, when I was being discipled by a, a gentleman in college, one of the things he exhorted me in was, how did I prepare myself when I was reading God's word? And he shared with me um, four different verses that he contemplates as he's preparing his heart before he starts uh, in his daily devotion. And they make the acronym IOUs, IOUs like IOU, but plural. Um, it is incline my heart to your word, Psalm 119, 36. Open my eyes to see the wonderful things in your law, Psalm 119, 18. Unite my heart to fear your name, Psalm 86, 11. Hence why we selected this psalm to teach. And then satisfy me with your unfailing love, Psalm 90, verse 14. And and those have been a helpful tool. I won't say that every time that I open my my Bible in in a, a devotion do I pray those, but those have been a helpful thing for me, and, and hopefully that might be helpful to you. But as, as I prepare my heart, as I seek to approach God's word with a desire to not only understand from an intellectual level what is written there, but to have it motivate my praise, motivate my desire and passion uh, to follow God, uh, that's been very helpful to me. And, and of those, probably the one that I, I really cling to the most is Psalm 86, 11, because it's, you unite my heart in this idea of as we approach God's word, as we approach God in prayer, as we uh, are, are living out this Christian life, there's so much distraction around us. There's so much that could pull us in, in a different way, uh, away from the Lord. And so we need our heart to be united. We want to be focused on, on the Lord. And so that's one thing that's been very helpful to me as I, as I prayed that. And so uh, that's why I chose this text today. So it kind of, I guess, was maybe a life verse for me, but not not really in the sense of like this is a verse that I put in front of me as a life verse and unfortunately not from the net random num- number generator. So despite uh, others' assertions, that was not the case. So what do we have here in Psalm 86? We have um, a prayer that was written. Uh, we know it's written by David. That's in the super text there, the subtext under Psalm 86. Probably in your Bible it says, 
some sort of heading. Mine says a psalm of supplication and trust. Um, that's just given to us by the interpreters. But it, it has a, a text of a prayer of David. So we don't know exactly what time in David's life this is written. We don't know that it's connected to a specific event in his life. We don't know if it's early in his life, late in his life. We don't know anything other than David penned this psalm, which we know he penned a lot of psalms. Um, but it's it's relatively simple psalm. There's not It's not very flowery in its language. It's not very ornate in its concepts. It's very, it's very precise. It's very uh, focused on the Lord. It's very focused on his desire to be changed, to be transformed, and also to be protected. He's seeking, he's seeking the Lord's protection and guidance. At the very end of the psalm, we see that there is some sort of catalyst for angst or catalyst for tension in David's life at the time he's penning the psalm because there's, there's some group of men, some group of wicked men that are pursuing David, and he is uh, pursuing the Lord's protection in that. But that's really at the very tail end of the psalm. So I've, I've really broken out the psalm from my reading into four different sections. I don't think there's anything, um, you know, magical about these sections, but uh, the first seven verse, verses, it, it, it is a pleading that we see from from David for divine provision. He's, he's pleading with the Lord, and we're going to see this interesting interplay between him requesting something of the Lord and then him providing a, a why the Lord should respond. And then verses 8 through 10, we're going to see a praise regarding God's majesty. So he, he goes through that section in the first seven verses, then he just turns, and, and for three verses, it's just focused on praising God and, and extolling the majesty of, uh, of our God. Verses 11 through 13, there's a, a petition to prepare him. There's, there's a request, a specific request for God to equip David, to uh, enable him to be able to, have, to, be, uh, to take on these challenges, to, to face the trials of, of whatever he was going through at that time. And then finally, uh, there's a prayer for perseverance for David in the face of persecution. And yes, I did all use all P words there. That was, that was intentional, so you're welcome. Um, so as we dig in, I'm first going to read the psalm, and then I want to um, go through the different sections with you, but some things to pay attention to. First, uh, pay attention to the activity that, that David is requesting of God. God is, is to be a very active uh, person in this, and so as we hear David's prayer, listen for how he prays, not just to inform God of what's going on, as maybe our prayers can sometimes be, but to really beseech God to act, to do something in very specific ways. Secondly, see the humility of David. See his recognition that God is God and he is not God, right? And see his, his recognition that he needs something from God. He, he needs God's involvement in his life. This is not something he can do himself. Um, next, appreciate with David the splendor of our God, the wonder of our God and his marvelous character. Um, in this short, short little 17-verse section, there's so much in there where he's extolling the character of our God. So don't miss that. Um, also, I want you to see David's seeking God's strength. So sometimes, uh, as Rick kind of got started in with his, with his sermon today, um, we see that when we're desiring to, to change, when we're repenting, I think our, our Christian our tendency is to try to do that in our own strength versus the, the Christian's command is to do that in God's strength. And I, I really remarked in this psalm how David 
sought not to do it in his own strength, but was really seeking God's strength to do that. So look for that. And then finally, uh, look for David's pursuit of God uh, for his care in adversity. So now I'm going to read Psalm 86. Hopefully in that um, introduction, you've had a chance to, to turn there. So Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall magnify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. And will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness toward me is great. And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, Arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save your handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Father, as we open up your word today, I pray for your insight, your your encouragement in our heart. Would you come and condescend and intersect with our hearts today? Would you you encourage us? Would you see where maybe our, our prayers are lacking, where our prayers are are weak and shallow and are focused on external circumstantial things, would you help us to see as you motivated and inspired David to write these words and and gave them to us to, to use and to treasure and to be encouraged by, would you help us to see how you would have us be transformed by it? Would you open our eyes to see your majesty, your wonder? May our prayer really, Lord, seek you out and and plead with you and beseech you to act on our behalf. In Christ's name, amen. So that first section, the first seven verses I've entitled, Pleading for Divine Provision. And and as I mentioned in those first four verses, I hope you heard that as we were kind of going through, there's this tension in the first four verses, or not tension so much as this interplay between David seeking something from God, asking God for something very specific, and then seeming to provide a why, a, a, a reason for God to act in that way. So for example, look at verse one. He, he asks the Lord 
specifically, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. The word Lord there, maybe in your translation it's similar. If you see all caps in this passage, that is Yahweh. That is the name that God first gave himself when he was asked what his name was. Yahweh, I am. When you see Lord with a capital L but not the rest of it capitalized, that is Adonai or master, king, ruler. And then finally, he's also addressed in this passage as as God, Elohim. So here, he's asking God, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. I was really struck by how personal this prayer is for him. He's he's asking the creator of the world um, to, to stoop down, if you will, to bend down to hear the prayer of his servant. And not just to hear it, but he's, he's invoking or requesting or seeking God to actually respond, right? So in our prayers, as we're thinking through these things, are we praying with, with an anticipation like David is praying here, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me? Or do we just, we just take for granted that God answers, right? Or do we just take for granted that God hears our prayer? But, but David doesn't presume that in the psalm. He's, he's seeking the Lord, and he says, for I am afflicted and needy. So David is, is declaring that he's afflicted. He's going through trials. Um, needy is in, used in the opposite sense of rich. So he's saying, I'm, I'm poor. Now we know that David, I, we don't know exactly what time in his life this was. Uh, as a shepherd, he was surely poor. But I think the meaning there is really less about how much riches he's amassed, but more his position relative to God, right? So think about Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the same sense, I think David is looking to God and saying, you're, you're majestic. You, you don't even need to intersect with your creation, and yet you've given us, us that as a promise. And I'm, I'm asking you, I'm requesting of you to hear that, for I, for I need you. There's an there's a urgency to his prayer that is seen here. The next verse, preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. Preserve my soul. So there's there's an idea of, um, with that word preserve, to put a hedge around or to protect, to safeguard. David looks at God and says, I, I can't protect my own soul. I can't protect even that which is within me. That is which is most important within me, my soul, not my body. He's very specific here to say his soul. And he's asking God to preserve him, to protect him, to put a hedge around him. Why? For he is a godly man. Now, this was the one I have to admit as I was looking at this interplay between him seeking God and then giving God a, a, a reason for why he's asking God to do this. That seems like a bold statement, right? How many of you would look at God and in your prayer say, God, respond because I am godly, right? It seems like it could have some arrogance. And I, I don't think that's what's going on at all. You can see he's saying, preserve my soul. So there's an implication there that he doesn't think he can protect his own soul, that he needs God to act in that way. So I don't think he's being presumptuous here, but I think he's looking at his life and saying, I am, I'm seeking to follow after you. I am seeking to be that, that person that is declared in scripture to be a man after God's own heart. Now, David was flawed, right? We see gross sin in David's life, wicked, hideous sin Psalm 51, where he has to turn to God and say, I, I repent, I, I turn from this, I've, I've messed up, I've, I've messed things up royally. Um, but here he's seeking God and he's saying, um, look at my life, look at how I'm attempting to follow you. Um, yes, he's, 
a sinner. Yes, he's in need of grace. We're going to see that in other parts of this passage. But he's saying, Lord, look at my, my life. And then at the end of verse 2, oh, you, my God. Hear the personal nature of that. You, my God. It's like he's calling out to God. And this is not just some distant God who has no intersection with his life. But this is, this is his God. This is his personal God, the one he loves. Oh, my God. oh you, my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. The third verse, be gracious. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Again, even though David is striving to live a life that is set upon God, that is living according to God's precept, he knows he still needs God to be gracious towards him. He doesn't look to God and say, you have to do this because. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you I cry all day long. He's continually seeking God. Um, He's continually pursuing God. It reminds me of of passages we have in the New Testament that say pray without ceasing, right? In 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. He's seeking God. He's crying out to God. He's prostrating himself uh, before God to to incite and invoke God to respond on his behalf, to be gracious with him. Verse 4 Make glad the soul of your servant. Again, calling on God to make him joyful, to to put joy in his heart. Why? For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. David's placed himself in God's hands, right? In, In New Testament nomenclature, we would say he's submitted his life to God, right? He's, he said, I want to be about you, O Lord. I want my life to reflect you. I want my life to be known and characterized by my love for you. But I find it very interesting in verse 4, and I wonder if this is a part of our prayer, if we are seeking God, that our, our gladness, our joy, our, what we delight in, is that, is that coming from the Lord, or are we, are we delighting in other things, right? I think it's, it's very telling that David looks to God to be his giver of joy and God to be his giver of gladness. Now, we often use the word happy, right? So happy kind of has this sense of, of whatever circumstances are going on in life, whatever's happening around us, you know, that can make us happy or it can make us sad, right? But joy is something that we, we can choose to pursue, right? When you think of James, there's that, that challenging verse in James that says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, right? And we look at that and we go, consider it joy? Because we, we kind of replace that word joy with happiness. We're supposed to be happy in the circumstances. And the point is we're not to, the circumstances are going to come and go, but where we find our joy and our hope, when that's found in the Lord, then that's something that sustains, right? That's something that goes beyond the circumstances. And for those of you who were in first hour, Rick really hit on that as he was talking about repentance, right? And for those that are staying for second hour, more to come on that. But uh, when we repent, we're saying we're not going to take joy and delight in what's going on in our life, the sin in our life. We're going to find our joy someplace else. And David finds his joy, what makes his soul glad, what makes his inner man glad is he's seeking that from God. He's not seeking that in how well the kingdom's going. He's not seeking that in what, what, what's going on with his friends. He's not seeking that in what, what he's achieved in life. He's seeking that from God. And brothers and sisters, if, if you're, one, if your prayer doesn't pursue God to find your joy and your hope in God, 
I would challenge you whether you're praying about the right things. I would challenge you whether you are really looking to the right sources for joy. But secondly, um, if, you're, if you find yourself finding your joy in your circumstances, know that those, those are going to change, right? Health comes, health goes. Riches come, riches go, right? Uh, even friendships can come and go from an earthly perspective, but God remains. So find your hope, find your joy in, in the right places. Are we seeking to be joyful in him, or are we only pursuing God out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of, of obligation? And I think we can take from what David wrote here and take that encouragement, make glad the soul of your servant. Seek God to be the source of your joy. And so we see these, these first four verses of interplaying between God, act because I, I'm seeking you, because I want to know you, because I want you to make my soul glad, because I need your grace and I'm crying out for that. Verse five, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Now he, he's calling out to those things and I think implicit in the first four verses that he expects God to respond. He's not praying something that he doesn't think that God can achieve in his life. But when we get to verse five, verse five, we're really seeing now David start to extol the very character of God that enables him or that, that causes him to act in such a way. He's saying, Lord, Master, right? Again, that Lord right there is, is Adonai, which means Master. For you, Master, for you, King, for you, ruler of my life, are good, and ready to forgive, abundant in loving kindness. There's a, there's a link here in verse 5 between what he says here and then also repeats later in verse 15, which is a reflection of Exodus 34, 6. Was you, if you think about as God reveals himself to Moses and he declares who he is, he, he really shows Moses and declares his attributes, his character, right? And that's what he gives to Moses as, as a way to um, provoke Moses to pursue him. And, and those are repeated. You can see those same strings here. You are good. You are ready to forgive. You are abundant in loving kindness to all on, who call on you. So he's seeking the Lord. He's, he's reminding the Lord, not that the Lord needs reminded of it, right? But in this prayer, he is, he's reminding his own heart as he's seeking the Lord that you are good, you're ready to forgive, you have more loving kindness than, than is even necessary and you pour it out richly on your children. Verse six is a, ties into verse one, right? So he asked him to incline his ear and again he's praying it in verse six. Give ear, O Lord, O Yahweh, O the I am, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications in the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer. So I was thinking about that, and, and this kind of wraps up the first part, the first section on pleading. David's just not going through the motions here, right? I hope you're seeing the, the passion, the, the intensity of his prayer to God, his imploring God, his, his putting his heart out there before God. I hope you're seeing that in this text, but there's also not just doing this because he thinks he needs to to be a good believer, right? They weren't Christians at that time, but believers. Um, he, he's not just doing that. He expects God to respond, right? In verse 7, 
In that day of trouble I shall call upon you, for you will answer. He expects that God is going to respond to his cries. And I look at my own prayers and I think, do, do we pray with an anticipation that God is going to respond? Do you pray in such a heartfelt way that you, you believe God is going to respond? Or do we, you know, maybe have a tendency to, to want to caveat, oh God, if, if you're able, uh, oh God, if, if, you, if, it, if it happens to come to mind, would you do this, right? No, he's, he's praying with some fervency. Now that's not to say that if, if we pray for things outside of God's will, God is gracious, right? He doesn't give us things that are outside of his will. He doesn't give us bad things. He's a good father, right? And so when we, we pray and, and if we're praying for something that's not in accordance with his will, it's not what's going to happen. But I, I just was struck by and challenged in my own prayer life by how David is looking at this with such anticipation that God's going to do something, that God is going to, to, to be engaged with him. Here's this lowly man who is a creature crying out to the creator and yet expecting that the creator is going to respond. And I, I just, I wonder if in our own prayer, do we, do we see that? Do we, can we say with David, um, like he said in verse three, I've cried out to you all day long, right? Can we say that we've, we've presented our needs to God, that we've presented our hearts to God and asked him to be involved in our life or do we just kind of casually get into our prayers when it's convenient for us? It's really twofold here. In verse 3, we see David was crying out all day long. And then in verse 7, we see like in the specific day of trouble, he calls upon God. So uh, I think it's interesting that David, if we, if we read those together, David doesn't just crawl out to God when he's in trouble. But this is a regular part of his routine. And yet there seems to be some, some urgency in this day of trouble. And it's a little bit of foreshadowing what's going to come later in the passage where he talks about um, some wicked men who have risen up against him. So my encouragement to us as we think about this first section is, are we, are we pleading with God? Are we, are we seeking God? Are we looking at God and, and seeing his attributes and, and calling upon him to respond in our life because he is good, because he is gracious, because he is able, because he does want to be engaged in our life? Or are we just kind of casually going through because, you know, our care group leader might ask us if we're praying and we want to be able to say, yep, I did that this week. I prayed this week. This is, this is life or death for David, the way he's phrasing these. This is something he's passionate about. Verse 8 to 10. So he's kind of gone through that prayer where he's uh, praying for God uh, to, to intersect into his life. And I don't think that this is necessarily given as a pattern for exactly how your prayer should, should play out. I don't know that you necessarily need to implore God first, plead with him, and then go to God's majesty. But it's interesting that that imploring of God and his reflection on the character of God, it's almost like he takes a detour in verses 8 through 10 and just starts praising God. He can't help but like magnify the name of God as he's thinking about God in this prayer. And he says, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. The uniqueness of God. Do you know you serve the living God, the creator God? It's not just David's God. It's, it's the God of creation. No matter what nation, what tribe, what tongue, what background someone comes to, this is God, the creator God. There's no one like this God. Nor are there any works like yours. So he first thinks about the uniqueness of God, but then he thinks about the accomplishments of God. What has God done from the creation that you can read about in 
in uh, Genesis or, or what God did when he brought Moses out of Egypt or what David has seen in slaying Goliath, right? I mean, we don't necessarily know that this passage comes after he did that, but think about the fact that here's David and his faith in God and what God can do, he goes to fight Goliath. It wasn't because David was this great accomplished fighter who was defeated all these other giants, and he's like, yeah, I can do this in my strength. No, he trusted God. He said, how dare you, Philistine, throw that accusation out against God's people, and that's why he went to fight him, right? He believed God would answer, and he saw that, right? He saw the works. Do you take time in your life to reflect on where you've seen God's power played out in your life, where you've seen God act in your life? Is that part of your prayer a remembrance of what God has done? Or do we just move to the next thing, right? I mean, we're ten, our tendency is to look to the next trial, to the next circumstance. But David pauses here and says, there's no one like you. There are no works like your works. All nations whom you've made, it's almost like a, a, a little caveat. My, my, my text doesn't comma that, but in my mind, I'm kind of, kind of comma that. All, all nations, comma, whom you've made, comma, shall come and worship you. Because David's reflecting on not only are you my God, not only have I seen you work, but you've created all the nations. Everything came to being because of you, God. And they shall come and they shall worship before you. God created them. The lesser comes to the greater to worship. Because the created was created by the creator, the created comes to worship the creator. And David is praising God for that. You shall come, you shall worship, they shall come, uh, and they shall worship before you. They shall glorify your name. We've talked about that in in other um, studies, but there's a sense of of God's name that is important to him. There's something about the name of God that is to be revered. It is to be praised. It is to be worshiped. It is to be um, extolled, magnified, and he says, the nations will do that. They will come and worship before you. They will, they will glorify your name. We haven't seen the final accounting of that. We do see a couple different points. It wasn't too long ago that I was teaching Jonah in here. And we remembered that the, the nation of Nineveh, or the nation of Assyria, I should say, the Ninevites, they turned to the Lord even though they were pagans because of God's message through Jonah. So we see that in pockets, but we know and look forward to a, a future revelation when All nations will truly bow before God and have to recognize and and assert and and, and claim and praise him as creator. They will be given no choice at that point. They shall glorify his name. Verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Great here can be a a meaning of of importance, magnitude, extent. God God is great. We are to be humble because God is great, because God does wondrous deeds. Um, Nothing is too difficult for God. And again, as in the reflection in verse 8 and verse 10 here says, you alone are God. There is no other God. There is no other that we are to submit to. And so for the second second section, I just, I wonder if, if in our prayer lives, we should be more provoked to think about and remember and praise God for who he is? Do, do, your prayer, do your prayers have within them marveling at the glories of God? Do you, do you pause and think of this God who you're, who you're calling out to, who he is? Is that part of it? Or 
is the only time that God's really mentioned in your prayer that initial salutation, Father God, and now I'm going to give him all my needs, right? Again, God invites us to come to his throne room. I'm not discouraging us from prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm challenging myself in my prayers to take time to think of what God has done and who he is along with those things that we want to see him accomplish in our lives that desire to find our joy, our hope in him, our, our meaning and purpose in existence because our life has been transformed by his gospel. Next, we see a petition to prepare. To prepare. We see um, David requesting of God that he work specifically in David's life to prepare him. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. It's a, it's a request to know the way of the Lord, to know God's desires for him, to know how he can please God, how he can serve God. Notice he doesn't say, you know, teach me a way, teach me how to overcome this, but he wants to know specifically your way, right? He wants to know what God desires of him. He wants to know what God's purpose and plan is for him. And then he's committing, I'm, I'm going to walk in that truth. I want to pursue that. Again, we, we know that David's not saying he's perfect. He needs the Lord's strength in that, but he wants God to instruct him. He wants God to, to change him, to, to make how he walks different than what we were before. And that was part of what Rick is hitting on this morning. Again, I feel like I'm like preaching part of his message here, but um, if your life is no different than it was before you intersected with the gospel, then you don't really know Christ, right? If your life is the same as it was before you submitted your life to Christ, you've not really submitted your life to Christ. How can I say that? That seems, that seems bold. Well, it's really not all that bold because the Bible says you once walked this way, and once you received Christ, you became a new creation, a new creature. You walk differently now because you know Christ. We had to be taught a way that was different than our own way. We were all born in iniquity. We were born sinners. We were born enemies of God is what Romans declares us to be. And we needed to have a heart transformed, changed to pursue God. And we see that in David's prayer. He's saying, I, I don't know the way. Teach me the way. Hear the humility in that to say, I've not figured it out. I need you, Lord. I need you to teach me. And, and if you teach me, Lord, I'm going to walk in that. I'm going to strive to do that. We know that that striving isn't just in his own exertions, but he needs God to act in his life in order to do this. Teach me your way. Do you, do you seek God and approach God with a desire to change? Do you seek God and approach God with a desire to be transformed? Or do you want to just keep living how you're living and just allow God, you know, whatever place that he can kind of fit in? That's, that's not Christianity. That's, that's just called Ben's way, right? Ben, Ben's way is over here. God, come over here. If, if, if it aligns up, we do the same thing together. Great. No, the gospel is, is different, right? If, if you're living the same way that you lived prior to receiving the gospel, you haven't really truly changed. You haven't repented, right? That's the word that we're studying this morning with Rick. You haven't, you haven't said, I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to pursue something different. I'm going to be um, somebody different because, the, because my whole purpose and meaning in life has been transformed by God. So we should approach God, even in our prayers, we should approach him with a desire to learn, to change, to follow his way, not our way. 
Verse 11, you, the second part of it, unite my heart, Lord, to fear your name. Well, I, I doesn't say Lord, I inserted that. Unite my heart to fear your name. Um, here he, he's not talking about the physical heart, obviously, right? I mean, the Bible talks about the heart as the seat of spiritual direction within somebody. They're the seat of their, 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 their true passions and desires. And he wants his heart to be united. He's recognizing that our hearts are, have a tendency to be fractured. We have a tendency to be pulled in different directions and easily distracted, right? I mean, I see that in my own prayer time when I'm praying and all of a sudden I'm thinking about something else, right? We've got to come back and say, no, Lord, I, I'm, I, want to, I need to seek you in this because, because I'm so easily distracted, so easily turned aside by some other flashy, noisy thing, right? But David's request was make my heart united, make my heart uniform, consistent, focused on something. And, and that something that he gives here is to fear your name. Now, we think of fear as, as a bad thing, right? We, um, we don't want to be afraid of anything. I mean, we're, we're Americans. We're not afraid of anything, right? But David says the opposite. Help me to fear you, God. That's just, that's a right understanding of God isn't our, just this buddy or genie that we rubbed in order to try to get something, right? This is the creator of the world that we're approaching. And when we approach him, we approach with some fear, not because we're, we're afraid any longer because of our sins, because Christ is, if you've trusted in Christ and you've submitted your life to Christ, Christ paid your price on the cross. He paid for your sins. There had to be a payment for your sins. Christ has paid that. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to experience the wrath of God. And yet we are to fear. We are to revere. We are to approach God with a certain level of respect that is due the creator of the world, right? You're, you're not just going in to talk to uh, your friend. You're talking to God, the creator God. And we want our hearts to be consistently centered on fearing God so that we might know him and know his way. Verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God. Again, a very personal comment here from David. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. And will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness towards me is great. And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. David's response to his intimate God, he's giving thanks. He's praising and exalting the name of God forever. It's a, a pledge of allegiance to his God. His motivation there, verse 13, 4, God has been gracious to him. And, and he saved him. Again, back to, if we, lest we think that David is saying, I've earned it, God, and you have to respond because I've done this. No, he looks to God and says, you delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol, something I could not achieve. I couldn't, I couldn't rescue myself. I needed a savior. God, you've done that. You've rescued me. I know the vile sinner that I am, and you've delivered my soul from Sheol. God alone, God's hand alone was able to save. If he was delivered from Sheol, David was acknowledging what we, what we know from Ephesians, right? That he was dead in his trespasses. He was incapable of keeping God's law perfectly. That's what the, the Old Testament saints, they had the law and they knew, I can't keep that. I, I can strive to, by God's strength, I can, I can keep some of it, but I'm, I'm imperfect. I, I, can't, 
I can't keep this law. Only one person kept the law perfectly. That was Christ, right? So they looked to a Messiah. They looked to a Savior. They looked to a rescuer to be able to save them. We now know that to be the name Jesus, right? We know that to be the Son of God who came. They had an incomplete understanding, but even David says, you delivered my soul. You you took my soul out of Sheol and delivered me. You rescued me, God. And then final section here. Uh, Preservation in the face of persecution. Probably my greatest stretch with the P's. I'll I'll admit, I kind of had the first three P's and I was stretching a bit here. But then to kind of double down, I, I put two P's in there, right? Preservation in persecution, I thought, okay, that will convince everybody that I had this together. So, um, but now we've kind of gone, we've gone through that. We've gone through his pleading with God to, to be engaged in his life, to, to change uh, how he even thinks. We've seen how he's in, turned into this magnif- uh, magnification of God and praising of God's name. And then we've seen him implore God or, or seek God to prepare him, to give him instruction, to cause his heart to fear him. And now we kind of see perhaps what was the catalyst in this initial Uh, prayer that he's writing here because we see that his life seems to be under threat. Um, Verse 14, oh God, arrogant men have risen up against me and a band of violent men have sought my life. Now we we don't really know exactly what this trial is, like I said. Um, There there were different times in in David's life that we know of that he was under threat. Um, Perhaps he wrote this when he was running from Saul's men who were determined to kill him so that Saul can maintain his uh, kingdom, and David would no longer be a threat to that kingdom. Perhaps that's what it is. Um, he describes the men as arrogant, as proud. Um, they've risen up to, to take him, so they're, they're proud. They're seeking their own way, right? And they're violent men. There's this idea they're, they're tyrants, they're ruthless, this band of violent men. So there's more than just one guy, but there seems to be this group of people. They've sought his life, so he feels like his life is in peril. And I find the end of verse 14 interesting. And they have not set you before them. So this band of violent men, this, these proud men, they, these are not followers of God, but they are, for whatever reason, they're pursuing David. And David sees that their wickedness is, is compared to the faithfulness uh, of his God. Their, their pursuit, their ends, what they're seeking is different than what he sees as what should be sought um, based on, on who his God is. Because you see that in verse 15, there's this turning where he says, this is, this is my situation, oh God. These violent men, are, they're trying to kill me. But you, oh Lord, and we might expect him to say, but you, Lord, are going to stop them. He says, instead he points to the, the character, again, of our God. And I, I mentioned that in verse 5 and verse 15. There's some tie there because they're both drawing from characteristics that we see about who God is in Exodus 34, 6. But he says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. So these men, they want to take David's life for whatever reason, um, because of their arrogance, because of you know, their desire to, to keep the kingdom with Saul. We don't really know. But God is, by contrast, merciful and gracious. He's not quickly provoked. In fact, he's slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. So he's reflecting on this situation, this trial, and he's contrasting uh, the attitudes and actions of these other men who he doesn't, who he says are not 
followers of God, and he compares that to God's own heart, God being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. And then um, verse 16, we see that uh, petition for preservation where he says, turn to me, be gracious to me. Oh, grant your strength to your servant, which I I find that um, possessive there to be very helpful in our own prayer. He's not asking for, you know, give me the strength or give me a strength or allow the strength within me to be sufficient. He wants God's strength. Help me to have your strength and save the life of your handmaid. I'm your servant, God. You are my master. I'm I'm seeking to follow you and, and you've done wondrous works in my life and yet these violent men would desire to see me ruined. They would desire to end my life. Preserve me. Give me your strength to endure this trial. Save me from these wicked men, right? The son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good. So he's asking for um, strength. He's asking for salvation. And he's asking for a sign, which I think is interesting here. But he says, show me a sign for good. Give me something, Lord, that, that causes us, others to see that I'm really the one pursuing you and these other people, what their ways are, are, are wicked and they're far from you. That those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O oh Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Give him a sign, a lasting marker. This, this word is actually the same word that's used for the marker that was given to Cain. Uh, to preserve the life of Cain. If you remember, Cain slew Abel, and then um, he was very worried that the community was going to rise up and, and kill him. So he goes to God and says, give me a sign, to, to our, give, give me a protection, and he's given a sign. Graciously, God gives him a sign and says, no one is to harm Cain. Well, that same word for sign is used here, and so David's seeking God to give him some, some marker, some, some evidence in his life, and, and God's intersection into that Um, situation that others might see that David's truly pursuing God and that they ultimately might be ashamed and and turn to God because God is the one who helped him and comforted him. So what are are our takeaways from that? We got about 11 minutes left. I promise I'm not going to use the full 11 minutes, but what are the takeaways? What What can we be thinking about And I I try to tie them back to uh, the four sections here. But takeaways in my own heart as I was thinking about this passage and and praying about how God might use it for us. um, Are you pleading with God? Or are you um, trying to live for Christ, but Christ is not even on your mind? Are we, when you look at your prayer, are are you... begging with, for God to intersect into your life, to change you, to transform you, not just alleviate your circumstance, that, that may be part of it, but that God would, would renew within you, that he would develop within you his character, that others might see him in you and how you interact. Or, or do you say you're living for Christ? Do you say you're living for God, but, but frankly, you don't really think about him all that much or his um, involvement in your life. It, if not, if you look at your prayer and, and it's, 
it's mainly just about your circumstances and, and you're really not begging, pleading with God to be engaged in your life, I would challenge, well, what is your zeal? Are you, are you really pursuing God? If God's not your zeal, if, if, if his change in your life is not what's most important to you, then what are you really living for? And it's either a chance to, to maybe repent of some of those things or maybe, maybe you need to trust Christ for the first time. Um, secondly, within that context of pleading, do you see yourself as needing God's joy? Do you, do you see God as the source of your gladness, of your hope? Um, or are you just in your prayers just seeking preservation in the midst of the trial? Because David here obviously was in a, what he believes to be a life-threatening trial, and yet he's pleading with God to preserve not his body, but his soul, his spirit man. His, his heart, right? He wants his passions. He wants his, his, his desires to align with God's desires. He wants, his, he wants to delight in the things that God delights in, right? Maybe that's another word we can use for, for joy. What is he delighting in? What are you delighting in? Do you have a sense of desperation? So that's the first one, pleading. Second, are you praising God for his attributes and works in your prayer? Is that, is that part of your daily vernacular, your vocabulary? Are you, are you praying to God and is that leading you to praise and extol God uh, and his character? If that's missing, are you fueling that? If we're, if we're not praising God, how do you fuel that? Well, it's, are, you, are you reading his word for the purposes of seeing where you can be changed to see how it, how it praises him, how it puts the attention on God? Are you um, discussing his work with others. Uh, do you get into God-honoring conversations because you're talking about uh, what God is doing in your life, asking people what God's doing in their life? Um, being part of a body, that, that is what God has called us to do is to be those instruments of, of change, of sanctification in one another's life. Maybe it's who we're choosing to be around, right? If, if you're not finding yourself praising God, are you surrounding yourself with people that help you with that or lead you away from that, right? And um, that can have a massive impact on, on our living. So third, are you petitioning God? Not just a reprieve from sorrows and sufferings of everyday life, which again are okay to do, but for his instruction and his unification of your heart to know and to love him. We're to consider trials to be pure joy in James. He doesn't promise that he's going to take us out of the trials. He promises that he's going to use the trial to develop his character within you. His, um, he's going to preserve you and, and use that to develop hope within you, right? So, yes, we can pray about our circumstances, and, and we should, but are we, are we seeking to know him more, to know his way more? Or do we get confused and think, I know Christ, and I'm a, I'm a Christian now, but I'm just going to continue to live as I was before. That's not compatible with the gospel. We know that by nature, we don't love God, right? We were, again, born enemies of God, born in opposition to God. And to, to live in that, to remain in that, is to reject the gospel, right? Um, and we don't desire to do that. So are we bringing our heart into submission by, by asking the Lord to show us his way? not our way. 
And then finally, are we seeking him for his uh, preservation and his power? Uh, Again, I I feel like I say this a lot, but I think it's important, uh, maybe just for my own heart, but um, living the Christian life cannot just be done as a test of will, right? This, you, you can't defeat the flesh with the flesh. If, if you want to grow in Christ-likeness, you have to lean into God for his strength and his power. You're, you are not going to be successful in your battle against sin by leaning on the flesh. You must learn to submit that to God. And it's kind of contrary to, um, you know, what we're, we're taught, I guess, by the world that it's, it's the, the self-made man that we glorify. We're going to make a Hollywood movie about the guy who came from nothing and, and just willed himself into this, this amazing empire that he now owns of all these assets, right? That's sort of like the quote-unquote American dream, but that's, that's, that's not God's blueprint for the Christian life. God's blueprint for the Christian life is humble submission, knowing that we're incapable of that and, and submitting to God saying, I need your strength to do that. Your strength, not, not just double down on my strength, but I need your strength to live according to your will. My self-exertions, my exertions according to the flesh are going to be um, incapable of achieving what we desire to do in Christ. So hopefully those are helpful to you. Uh, The Lord definitely uh, used those in my own uh, heart this week as I was uh, thinking about this. Let me close this in prayer and then you'll be dismissed. Father, you are most gracious to us as we we are, we're here today to, to worship you, to know you, and the fact that the creator of the world gave us a, a guidebook, gave us his word, your word, so that we would know how to do that is, well, to the world, it's foolishness. They, they don't understand it, and yet to those that have been called according to your name, who you've revealed yourself to, we can see no other way. We have no other hope. But you, you alone can save. You alone can change. You alone can transform us. And even as we talk about these, these lofty things that we desire to be like, like David and his heart towards you, we know that in our flesh we're incapable of these. But God, would you, would you do that in our lives so that others might see that's not Ben, that's, that's not so-and-so, right? But this is you working in our lives. Would they see that? Would they see your hand, would they see the, the marvelous mysteries of, of your power and how you've changed us from what we once were to what we uh, can be through Christ. Lord, if there are any that don't know you, Lord, make that, make that abundantly clear uh, to them that they might know the hope and the, the treasures that lie in pursuing Christ. Yes, we must lay off some of the claims that this world has on our heart, but there's so much more to be had and to be found in you, the creator, the one who's able to delight our hearts. This world offers many passing joys, many passing um, things, but you remain, you abide, you exist forever, and you are gracious and you are merciful to act for those that would humbly submit you so, to you, Lord. So I just I pray that we would do that today. Give us uh, godly conversations to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ and their walks with you to be an encouragement and, and, and provoke them um, to good deeds and to know you greater. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.